perfect, but they never see the light of day. They have survived yard sales, clothing drives, and endless washes in scalding hot water. They hide folded on the top shelf because I've been told that I cannot wear them in public anymore. <laughs> I've had them for eight years, and they're not going anywhere. On the back, a small leather strip that says, Levi Strauss and Company, number 527, original riveted quality clothing, patented 1873. They're beat up, and I don't care. They have lost their color in places. I call that character. <clears throat> they may be a little threadbare. I call that experienced. And I'm willing to bet that you probably have a pair just like them. Have you noticed how fleeting and passing and fad-driven our culture has become? We order coffee on our phones to save time. It's easier to replace a washing machine than it is to repair it. We move and relocate more than any other generation in history. And our casual flippancy extends further. Marriage, fix it or flip it. Conflict at work, eh, it's probably just easier to quit. Kids, well, it's a little bit of a different story. And eventually, if we allow ourselves to be introspective enough, a nagging talent that comes easier to some of us than others, we'll wonder if maybe our faith is the same way. Is my faith a decision that I made once, a long time ago, but now falls into this casual momentum and inertia of life? Church, while quaint and commendable, at least for a little while longer in our culture, is it really relevant to me? Or worse, Jesus, is he the master of my life or just a self-soothing savior that I just need like a crutch to get me through my week? I really believe the good things are the lasting things. Faith isn't fashionable, and Jesus can never be a trend. So today we're starting a new sermon series for the fall called Vintage Faith. Seven weeks in Hebrews chapter 11. So seven weeks, one chapter. We're going to go super deep. Here's the idea. In September, we spent four weeks doing a deep dive in this obscure little book in the Old Testament called Haggai tells the story of this old prophet who called God's people to examine their priorities, consider God's perspective, welcome his perfection, and expect his promise. And if you've been thinking about that, you go, oh, that sounds really good, but like, who has actually done that? Who lives a faithful life? Who has actually done this thing and seen it last in their life? Something I've noticed, and maybe you've seen this in your life, that a faithful life or a faith that lasts is caught more than it is taught. And I take that to mean that if we're going to consider how to spend our lives well and not like a passing fad, having a flesh and blood example is crucial. So today we're setting the tone. We're just starting off with the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And we're just looking at the first four. These first four verses give us two crucial aspects to a lasting faith. And as we look at them, I think you'll see that a faithful life begins 
with a righteous heart. Before we get into Hebrews, though, a little bit of a context. So, a little bit of background. This is one of those weird books in the New Testament that we can't just jump into, because it's kind of like if you just drop in the middle of a chapter, it's, it's kind of like walking into somebody's house through the kitchen window. It's like, this is not how we're supposed to get into this thing. So, I want to back up, and we're going to kind of orient ourselves a little bit. First off, who wrote the book of Hebrews? I have no idea. Scholars have debated this over and over. Some people say it's the Apostle Paul uh, because of the high use of the Greek language, the original language the New Testament was written in. Some people say it was an early Christian writer named Apollos. It's another guy who's mentioned in the New Testament. Some people say that it was a woman writer, and the reason that it's anonymous is because the idea of a female writer in the first century would not have been welcomed. It's a curious thought. I'll just let you know I think on any of those are plausible, and I'm not going to camp on any one of them. Here's what we do know is the writer of Hebrews was a second-generation Christian. This is somebody who heard about Jesus from somebody who knew Jesus. They didn't know him personally as he ministered on earth. But they are obsessed with the idea that Jesus is superior and supreme over everything. It sounds a little bit like what we're about here, right? Well, who's it written to? Well, you could go, well, Hebrews, all right? So Jewish people, that's a really good example. So these are people in the New Testament era who are ethnically Jewish but believe in Jesus as Messiah. There's no towns listed or cities or, or anything else like in Paul's letters. There's no names really, and so it's a little bit more of a general letter. But if you had to summarize Hebrews in one sentence, it would be this. Jesus is better. That's the whole book in three words, cliff notes, right? So, we're 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, about 60 to 70 A.D., somewhere in there. And the church has gained some momentum. But all this interest in this king called Jesus has the Roman government more than a little concerned. Persecution is growing. Being linked with this upstart Jewish carpenter is becoming problematic and dangerous. And so these Christians are asking some really tough questions. They're saying, do we have a faith that lasts? Or is this little experience with Jesus just kind of a thing? What does lasting faith look like? Who's done this before? How did they do it? And what can we learn from them? And all of that brings us to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is the first of two things we're going to look at this morning. Your first point on your outline for you blank filler types, here it is. Faith defined. What is faith? Faith defined. These are the first two verses. We see couple of things here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, this is a great example of how in Hebrews, the writer uses language that's almost lyrical. Like, that's almost poetic, isn't it? You see that, and you're going like, oh, man, like, that sounds so beautiful, but what does it mean? <laughs> so in this case, the language is a poetry called a couplet. Sorry for those of you that just had PTSD back to sophomore English class. What is a poetic couplet? It's these two lines that when you put them together and you put them back to back, although they're saying the same thing, they kind of amplify each other. 
right? And so when you put them back to back, you get a fuller, richer understanding of what the writer is trying to communicate. So think about it like this. Take a sunset. If I had to describe a sunset to you, I could say this. It's like someone watercolored the sky. It's like the climax of a beautiful symphony. And so if I put those two ideas together, you go, oh, I get it. I kind of get an idea of what you're trying to get at. So do you hear it? Both of these lines amplify each other. So let's take a look. The first thing, what's he say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Assurance, that's a great word. In the first century, that word is actually used in a transactional sense. It's the deed to a piece of property. How many of you have ever financed a home or sat down with a realtor and you've got that binder full of paperwork, right? And you sit there, wherever table it is, whatever office it is. I remember when we did this for our house and there's a binder full of stuff and you have to initial, like, how many billions of times and you're signing stuff and like by the end of it you're like this doesn't even look like my signature my hand is all cramped up and weird but at the end of it you go oh my gosh there is the last page and you sit down and you go and then it's like call the moving company get the carpet guys going like we're moving in that's the idea behind this word assurance it's like it's as good as done But we're also told something else. It's the conviction of things not seen. This is a little more subjective, isn't it? It's the conviction. It's this inner belief, this idea that I can rest on something. Faith is saying, I believe it even though I can't see it. My belief is my evidence. Now, the more philosophically minded among you have little red flags going up right now. And you're going, hey, wait, 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 time out. Circular reasoning, that doesn't work. (laughs) You can't just say, well, I believe it, and therefore it's true, right? Like, okay, tell Bigfoot I said hello and tell the UFOs to park in my yard next time. That's not how this thing works, right? Just because I believe in something doesn't make it true. Here's how this works. Everybody in this room has faith. Everybody is believing in something, okay? When you got in your car this morning, you exercised faith in the manufacturer that the wheel wouldn't fly off going down Main Street. Sorry, now I just like freaked you all out, right? So when you go out to lunch this afternoon or you sit down somewhere, you're going to exercise faith that the food was prepared correctly. You are sitting in a chair right now. You're exercising faith that the chair can hold you, right? You are actually exercising faith unnumbered times a day. You just don't even realize it. Faith is simply living as if the things that I hope to be true are. Here's the funny thing about faith. Most of the time, it's not quantifiable. You can't measure it. Let me ask you a question. For those of you that are married in here, how do you know that you love your spouse? Like, give me data. Plot it on a grid. You can't. Right? If your parents in here this morning, like, tell me how you feel love from your kids and how you show love to your kids. You can't do it. It's qualitative, right? Tell me how you are devoted as a, as, a, as a Christian. Tell me how you're devoted as a worker. Now, you could show me, like, you know, how many times I've dated my spouse in the last year or how much I spent on, on Christmas presents or at work, like, how many hours you put in as an employee or, like, if you're going on a family vacation, like, here's what we did. All of those things to serve to support your claim, but they aren't the evidence itself, are they? Faith isn't quantifiable. It is 
qualitative. It's something different. Here's the point. As an image bearer of God, you were meant for more than what your senses could ever apprehend. There is something deeper in you, past data. And if you listen to that, that is where faith wants to live. It is deep in your bones. A sunset is beautiful, and I can't quantify it. I can only describe it to you and invite you to see it with me. And when we see it, we go, ah, oh, that, ah. Oh. That is where the locus of faith wants to dwell. So practically, if you buy the idea that everybody has faith in something, the only question becomes, what? What is your faith in? Spoiler alert, there's only two options. Either you are the final authority in your life, or God is the final authority in your life. I don't believe in God because I can't see him. Who's the final authority? Me. I don't believe in God because that whole idea is illogical to me. Who's the final authority? Me. I don't believe in God because I just have too many questions. Who's the final authority? Me. Here's the thing. You do not want a God that you can explain because a God that you can explain is not a God that is worthy of your worship. And a God that you can't worship is a God that is too small for you. But it's not always that innocent, is it? I don't believe in a God who would give my mom cancer. I don't believe in a loving God because my abuser did. And how could a loving God turn his back on me? I don't believe in a God because everyone who does is either a hypocrite, a liar, or just plain mean. And if you've ever said those things, you're not alone. Those are very valid concerns. Here's my word for you. He loves you whether or not you believe him. He is that big. And he is chasing you and he is relentless. Faith is not an act of proud courage from inner strength. It's an act of humble obedience to a God who loves you. And I think you'll see that over and over in these next several weeks as we look at the book of Hebrews. So that's the first crucial aspect we had to get this morning is a faith defined. Okay, now that brings a lot of questions with it that I know right now you're like, wait, I, I want to ask about this and that and the other thing. I just need to put that out there and we'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. But that is a faith defined. Se second thing we want to look at this morning is faith demonstrated. Faith demonstrated. This is the rest of chapter. Seven examples over seven weeks where faith is demonstrated. And so let's take a look at the very first one. This is in verse 4. Take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 4. Here's our first example, first demonstration of this faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Over these two sentences, the writer of Hebrews summarizes one of the earliest scenes in Scripture that we're going to take a look at in the next 15 minutes or so. Two brothers with two offerings. One accepted, the other rejected. 
One called righteous, the other called unrighteous. One commended, the other disregarded. And there are plenty of things that we could speculate about this story because I'm willing to bet that a good number of you are familiar with Cain and Abel and you know one thing, right? We, what is the one lesson of Cain and Abel? Don't kill your brother. Of course, it goes deeper than that. And so we've got to kind of peek under the hood and go, what's going on here? I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, like, there have been times in our parenting where we have looked at Joseph and Karsten and said, look, don't you know the story of Cain and Abel? And they're like, yes. So don't kill your brother. (laughs) So what's going on here? I want to ask one question because it has a bearing on our text this morning. What was it that made Abel's offering acceptable? Or put another way, what constitutes a righteous act? You ever thought about that? Like what makes a good thing a good thing? Here's why that's important to ask. Is your neighbor who puts an extra couple quarters in the Salvation Army bucket at Christmas, who checks your mail while you're away on vacation, who organizes a neighborhood canned food drive, is your neighbor engaging in a righteous act? Now, I'm not asking, is that noble? Is that good? Is that, does that make for a better society? Is it thoughtful? Is it caring? I'm not asking that. I'm asking, is that a righteous Act Is doing something noble the same as doing something righteous? Well, in order to get to that, we've got to rewind in our Bibles back to Genesis chapter 4. Um, you can turn there in your Bible or you can just listen as I read it. Um, because we've got to see this story unfold. Genesis chapter 4. And we're just going to read the first couple of verses. Here it is. Now Adam knew his wife Eve. I'm not going to explain that to you. I will let you read between the lines. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Quick summary. A righteous act must begin with a righteous heart. And that is deeply problematic for us. And I'll explain why. So Mandy and I started dating in 2000, 19 years ago. We were reminiscing about this the other day. Uh, we were students at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and uh, we, we toured uh, the country with an orchestra together, and there was the last day of our spring tour, and I'm like, I want to sit next to her on the tour bus. And so I sat there, and I'm like, I had orchestrated this whole thing. Like, I had totally worked this thing beautifully. Like, I told her, former seat partner, like, don't sit next to her. I want to sit next to her. So we worked this whole thing out, and we're sitting there, and I finally, like after 45 minutes of sitting next to her, I was looking at this, she'll tell you, I was looking at the same page in a book for 45 minutes, apparently just sitting there trying to work up this courage thing. After 45 minutes, I finally worked up the courage to ask her for coffee. And so we had our first coffee date together when we got back to Chicago. Um, It was in in the Starbucks under the L tracks, which sounds super shady, but whatever, it was good. And so we started dating, and like it was this wonderful thing. 
And then because I was a super wise, super discerning, super mature 19-year-old, <clears throat> we broke up like three weeks later. I'm just being vulnerable. She knows I'm telling the story. I think it's cool. So, and then what happened was, like, the next fall, like, we got back together. And we were just like, man, I, I think I made a mistake. So we started dating again and then broke up the next spring. I think, like, this whole, like, friends, like, Ross and Rachel thing impacted an entire generational dating <laughs> just more than we really want to admit, okay, just so we can be clear. We all have commitment issues, all right? So, but then, like... After a little while, it was, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, it was years went by, like three years, and I'm going, I am about to let the best thing that's ever happened to me go, and I don't want that. And so I concocted another scheme, <clears throat> just learning a lot about me here, so lay it out there. I asked her out on a date to Oak Street Beach, which like you can see the Chicago skyline, it's really pretty and it's cool, and I had worked up this whole thing where I was going to beg her to take me back. I had finally gotten to a point where I said, look, here's what God has been doing in my life and in my head and in my heart, and he has worked out some profound immaturities in me, and there's stuff that I didn't know about myself that he showed me, and I need to repent and say, would you consider having me back? I'm just like, Ugh. you know what she said? I need to think about it. Which was like, oh, dang, like, that was the most beautiful thing ever. Like, what was she saying? Not, can you provide for me? Not, can you take me out to dinner? Not, can you act like a boyfriend or act like a godly man? She goes, I need to think about this because I need to know your heart. Very good question. And she did, by the way, so it's okay. Remember our question, is doing something noble the same thing as doing something righteous? Answer, no. <laughs> nice actions don't impress a holy God. The Bible says all of my righteousness is like filthy rags, right? You ever changed out a toilet and like put a rag down the hole to keep the sewer gases from coming up, right? And you pull it out and you go, that, that is a filthy rag. That is all of my clothing donations. That is all of my little soup kitchen visits, all of my random acts of kindness, right? All of these things, that is a filthy rag without Christ. In order for an act to be righteous, it needs to be the right thing done for the right reason from the right heart. The right thing done for the right reason from the right heart. Let's bring Cain and Abel back on the stage for a bit. The right thing. They both offered a sacrifice, okay? Cain, he was a farmer, so he brought a bushel of produce. Costly for him, okay? Like, let's not minimize that. Abel, who's a shepherd, he brought the first of his flock. Also very costly. The point, they both did something. Now, you can make an argument, and scholars have for, you know, millennia now, about, like, well, was fruit better than, like, the fat portions of an animal? And we can go back and forth over that. How about the second piece, though? The right thing done for the right reason. The text is silent here, but we can assume... They both felt compelled to offer something to God. And so they did it. But now we've got this third thing hanging over our head. The right thing done for the right reason from the right heart. Here's where the road that Cain and Abel are walking forks. Cain's heart was not inclined toward God. How do we know? Look at his response. 
He was angry and he was bitter. His face fell. And if you go on in the text in Genesis 4, God even warns him. He says, sin is crouching at your door, dude. Like, be mindful of this. It's going to take you over if you're not master over it. A righteous act must begin with a righteous heart. North Canton Chapel, we don't serve our neighbors because it's cool. (laughs) Or because it makes us feel better. It doesn't make for a nicer society. We don't volunteer because it fills our day or because it's like some instant karma kind of thing, like what goes around comes around. God, I hope that's not true. Apart from Christ, I can't be any kind of good, and neither can you. We do those things because they are tangible ways to make the presence of God known among those who don't know him, or put in another way, make much of Jesus every day to everyone, period. That's why we do these things. Now, that's faith demonstrated, and it helps us make sense of the story, but we're left with a really personal tension that we haven't answered yet. If a righteous act must begin from a righteous heart, what hope do we have? Because that ain't me, and that's not you. We're really smart, you know, and we're pretty good people, but we're not righteous. We are not clean, and you know that deep down, right? So Genesis 4, Abel is commended because he's righteous, but later in Deuteronomy, the people are kept out of the land because they're not. And then Moses, like, hey, commended for being righteous, but then you got David, right? What kind of a train wreck is that guy's life? And then like Habakkuk, you go through the prophets, and Habakkuk has the audacity to say, well, the righteous person is going to live by faith. And so like our life, don't you ever feel like this? It's just like this, Like, one day I'm on, the next day I'm not. One day I'm on, the next. Like, we're like a car on a sheet of ice, like, overcorrecting. Like, where is my stability? And by the time you get to the New Testament, it's like this big, giant, swelling crescendo. Like, I need to be righteous. Where is my hope? I'm running out of lambs and bulls and doves. I can't sacrifice enough to get myself righteous. What am I going to do? How do I become righteous? Because we have a problem if you keep turning the pages of the New Testament to the right, you eventually get to 2 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul reaches over thousands of years of history for God's people, and he makes this giant theological point in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Here's what he says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become, what? The righteousness of God. Do you get that? Like that we might become the righteous, not just that our actions would be righteous or that our offerings would be righteous or God would hear our voices on Sunday morning or look at what we drop in boxes or how we live our life and go, yeah, you're pretty good. But no, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. That is a profound theological statement. And it answers all of these loose ends that God had been priming his people for for thousands of years. Theologians call this the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's the idea that when you confess Christ, you are instantly declared righteous before God. Now, what does that have to do with what we do this afternoon? How I live, how I love my family, and how I actually communicate in 2019. I think there are five results of righteousness that I want to give us today. 
Five results that set the tone for, I think, where Hebrews wants to drive this bus. Here we go. First result of righteousness in the life of a believer. One, security. Anybody in this room ever feel insecure in anything? Right? If you're not raising your hand or nodding your head, you're, you're not being honest, right? Insecurity is tied to our humanity, right? If you're a parent, you're insecure. If you're a spouse, you're insecure. If you're a worker, you're insecure. If you just walk into a store sometimes, you're insecure, right? This is part of what we do. We're humans. We're vulnerable. We're at risk. But it's also one of the most practical applications of the gospel. Here's how this works. The most precious thing about me, my adopted sonship by my heavenly father, is something that can never be taken away from me. That's why we sing that song, like, I, I can't even get the words out anymore. Like, I am who you say I am. Could we just, like, swallow that truth and believe it down to our bones? Doesn't that sound like Romans 8.1? Like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am secure. Speaking practically, when anxiety rears its head in your life as it will, gospel it. <laughs> There is no storm that can overwhelm you if you are secure in Christ. Security. Second thing, second result of righteousness, freedom. Freedom. The degree to which you cling to Christ's righteousness is the degree to which you are free from sin and shame. Let me ask you a question. When God thinks about you, what does his face look like? It's a goofy question, maybe. When God thinks about you, what's he doing? Is he going, mm. is he going, <laughs> right? Or do you cling to the idea that because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, your heavenly father smiles when he thinks about you, not because you're awesome, but because the sacrifice was that great. Your heavenly father delights over you if you are hidden in Christ. That is a wonderfully freeing thing. Third result, worship. If you know Jesus, you and I have one thing in common. We are equally in debt to God. We are equally sinners, right? I'm just as bad off as you are. But if you confess Christ, we are equally made righteous in Christ. And so worship, here's the cool thing. When we enter heaven, we will enter as worshipers first. Think about that. There's no pastors. There's no missionaries, right? There's no Republicans, no Democrats, no political parties. There's no false lines that divide people. There's no denominations, right? When you enter heaven, we enter as worshipers first. And so that if that is true, if we are worshipers first, ever, and only, always worshipers, how does that translate how we have our relationships now? Man, we worship. Worship isn't music. Right? It's not 18 minutes and three songs on a Sunday morning. It's my life. This is Romans 12, 1 through 2, right? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. You don't stop worshiping when you leave on Sunday morning. You worship when you put gas in the tank of your car because you worship the one who made it possible, right? You worship when you're sitting down eating food because he gave it to you. When you enjoy a good relationship, laugh at a good joke, smile with your friends, you are worshiping the creator if you tie it back to the righteousness that he bought for you. See how that works? Worship doesn't stop. Every minute of every hour of every day for the believer should be a worship experience. 
if there's any part of me that doesn't totally worship God, there is no part of me that truly worships God. And so worship is a natural response if you've been made righteous through faith in Jesus. Fourth, this is a big one. Fourth result of righteousness in your life, confidence in warfare. Confidence in warfare. Now, I don't know what, what spiritual warfare looks like in your house, in your life. Um, we've had a ton of it just recently in our family. And here's, I'll just let you know, here's what the enemy does. Here's what he tries to convince me of. Two things. I am powerless and I am defenseless. One of those things is true, by the way. I am powerless, but I am not defenseless. Charity Lee Bancroft, an Irish widow, captured this idea when she wrote these words. Now get this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Oh. <laughs> I am powerless on my own and so are you. But we can be confident knowing that there's one who fights my battles for me because he triumphed over me. He protects what I cannot see. He defends what I cannot reach because he is what I could never be. But in his grace, he gives me his righteousness. Last thing, last result of righteousness in the life of a believer, mission. Oh, come on, you knew we were going to go here. Mission. Here's how this connects. If it's true that the righteousness of Christ can be given to guilty sinners like me, how much do I have to hate my neighbor to hoard that truth or to keep it to myself? If love for neighbor doesn't spill out of us, I wonder if we really know that we are saved. This is what John talks about where he says, if anyone hates his neighbor who he has seen and says he loves God who he hasn't seen, what is that about? Right? That's this driving point. The point of church is not to keep you away from people and to protect you from the world, but to inflame your love for people and send you into the world with the hope of the gospel. Because here's the truth, you cannot, be an, you cannot love somebody that you are choosing to be annoyed by. Sorry. And being annoyed by somebody is totally a choice. Because if you look at the presence of God in somebody, you look at they're an image bearer of God, anything is possible in that relationship. But if you focus on how they annoy you, you're circumventing the fact that this is a person who needs the righteousness of Christ, or maybe he isn't even living in that gospel space. When you come to Christ, you release your rights to petty annoyances. That's not your story anymore. You are driven by something way bigger than that. Because you care about people and you care about things because the one who made you righteous does. So, in closing, here's my question. Do you know the one who makes you righteous? And if you do, are you living in that reality or are you buying the lie that the enemy wants to offer up to you? If you go back to Cain and Abel, that's the difference. It's a heart issue. Don't perform for him. Be changed by him. He loves you and he is chasing you and he is relentless. So they've lasted eight years and I hope that they last longer, but I have my doubts. 
they're probably going to fade and tear up because it's what things do. I am really excited, though, over the next two months or so to look at this gospel of righteousness and faith in Hebrews 11. I think God has great things in store for us. Let me pray for us, can I? Father, you are so wise and so good, and we don't add one thing to you. You were in perfect glory before the world was made. You made us out of an overflow of that glory. Though we rebel, you say, I want them back. And you sent your son, and you gave him up so that we could come home to you. Father, we love you, and we say thank you for loving us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.